time, I'd like to welcome uh, the professor of biology over at Penn State Harrisburg, Dr. Nick Sotako, to the stage, who is going to introduce the man of the hour. So let's give him a round of applause. Thank you, uh, Mr. Brubaker. So uh, I'm very excited for today. Um, I can see a few of our students. Um, again, I'm Nick Sotakos, professor of biology at Penn State Harrisburg, um, and I'm very excited for this. The times are weird. Science, we scientists are not always seen um, or viewed by the public as people who are down to earth, and I'm really, really grateful um, for this opportunity that the Midtown Scholar Bookstore is providing um, Dr. Rutherford to discuss issues that might be a little challenging for a general audience un to understand, but um, this actually event makes this feasible. Um, I am a little starstruck because the last book, um, Dr. Rutherford's last book, Rutherford's last book was, was great. It's one of my favorites. Um, so um, Adam Rutherford um, is a science writer. He's a broadcaster. He studied uh, evolutionary genetics at the University College of London. That's where he got his uh, PhD from. And um, his PhD, his thesis was on the, the developing eye. Uh, and during his graduate studies, he was part of a group uh, that identified the first known genetic cause of a form of childhood blindness. Um, his previous book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, the one that I was just talking about, um, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in nonfiction, and his uh, creation was shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize, and I've been told that the format of that book in the UK is different than the one that's w that we have here, so we have to travel over there and get one Okay, uh, <laughs> uh, he also writes a lot. He had a great blog where he revisited um, Charles Darwin's seminar w seminal work um, while he was revisiting it, um, rereading it, um, which was the first time you did that after your undergrad studies, I presume? No, after PhD. Oh, okay, okay. So, um, and then um, he presents um, Inside Science, that's BBC Radio 4's flagship scientific program. Um, the Cell, Playing God, which um, is about the rise of synthetic biology for the leading science series, Horizon. And he writes for The Guardian as well. He's here today to present his new book, Humanimal, How Homo Sapiens Became Nature's Most Paradoxical Creature a new evolutionary history. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Rutherford. Hi. Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you. That's a very generous introduction. It's, um, it's a real treat to be here. I've never been to Harrisburg before, but this bookshop, my god, I actually genuinely think this is the, I think it might be the best bookshop I've ever been to. Have you been downstairs? That, I, I didn't see that one coming. All right, anyway, um, so it's, it's, can I take this out? How's that? Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, as Nick was, was saying in the introduction, that very generous introduction, I am a geneticist primarily, and the last book that I wrote, which is called A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, was a 
it was readdressing human history, so about a million years worth of human history and evolution, but using genetics, using our DNA as a, as a sort of historical text, which is something which has only really emerged in the last few years, last 10 years maximum. Um, and this, this book is, a, is a pretty much a direct sequel in that that was covering about a million years worth of human evolution. This one's just about 100,000 years. So I'm really narrowing my scope down to that. But the, the fundamentally what it is is it's a move away from genetics and more into sort of anthropology and cultural history, but it's very scientifically based. And it's all centered around the question of, well, you know, what makes us human? So a, a question which has preoccupied thought for thousands of years. And, and many, you know, philosophers and more recent times scientists, but also poets and artists and writers have, have sought to answer this question, what makes us human? Um, and, and, and to my mind have, have not really succeeded, possibly because it's an unanswerable question. But there is a really boring, prosaic answer, which we can say from a scientific point of view, which is that what makes us human is having two human parents and having a human genome. But that really doesn't go any way to addressing the intricacies of the interest in, in the human condition. So this, this is a book in which, in all of my work, I've tried to embrace the complexity of science as it really is, and, and not what I think a lot of writers and a lot of scientists do, which is to misrepresent evolution and science by giving very linear stories, stories that have beginnings, middles, and ends, or things that are sometimes referred to as uniqueness theory, so one singular thing which transformed us at some point in our evolutionary history from being a less sophisticated ape into being the thing that we are today. So I, I, I do try to avoid um, those, those sort of singular narratives and really embrace the, 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 the honest representation of both science and evolution and sort of revel and swim in the, in the seas of complexity and in, enjoy the fact that we are incredibly sophisticated and complex and that is our history as well. So there's an inherent paradox, which is the, sub the subtitle is how we became nature's most pa paradoxical creature. And, and, and that's really the space that I'm, I'm exploring in this book, how we are both unique as an animal, but at the same time we are an evolved animal. And so we have, we have the same DNA, we have the same um, proteins, the same cells, we have evolved by the same mechanisms as every organism that has ever existed, and yet we are capable of, of, of this, of doing this, of being, being humans. And so I want to sort of, in the book, I'm, I'm sort of exploring that space. And in doing so, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of things which people over the years have argued are uniquely human, and you're probably thinking of them right now, but they include things like what I'm doing, which is speech, complex thought, but also art, mourning, communications. There's um, a lot on tool use. There's also a long section on sex, um, and I didn't really set out to write a book about weird animal sex, but it is in there. Um, but I'm not going to talk about that today because it's Saturday afternoon and it's definitely too early for that. Um, so you have to buy the book if you want to find out about weird animal sex. Okay. Um, so so this, this idea, so this idea of this sort of paradox of, of the human condition from a scientific point of view was first identified by Charles Darwin, my personal hero. I think I argue one, the greatest thinker that we've ever had, um, but it's tough at the top. And this is, in, this is a quote from his second, second best book, his second big book, The Descent of Man, in 1871, where he applies uh, evolutionary theory, evolution by natural selection, as described in The Origin of Species in 1859. He applies that to humans. The Origin of Species doesn't refer to humans at all. 
Um, but in doing so, he identifies in his typically beautiful prose that he was a terrific writer, I mean a really beautiful writer, but he identifies this paradox in this one, this one phrase with this godlike intellect which is penetrating to movements of the solar system. You know, we have all this incredible intellectual capability and power, but at the same time, we still bear in our bodily frame the indelible stamp of our lowly origin. Right? So using 18th century language, he manages to ignore 50% of humans, but um, we, can, we can overlook that. So this is, the, this is the key idea. This is the space that that's I'm, I'm exploring in, in this book. It's a, it's a beautiful sentiment, that, and it's beautifully worded, but a better writer than Darwin, and there aren't many, um, came up with exactly the same idea 250 years earlier in the soliloquy from Hamlet, where Hamlet says, what a piece of work is a man? And it describes exactly the same idea that we're capable of all these wondrous things in action like an angel and apprehension like a god. I wanted to call the book at one point The Paragon of Animals because it's such a beautiful phrase. My editor told me that was really pretentious. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she was right. So the, the line after this, after Hamlet says The Paragon of Animals, he says, but what is this quintessence of dust? Right? So we are this amazing creature, an animal, the paragon of animals, and yet at the same time, we are merely matter. So there is the same paradox again. So the book starts with Hamlet, and then it refers to Darwin, but then there's a line that I wrote in the final chapter of A Brief History. Uh, so I love films, and I quote, secretly quote films in all of my works, and sometimes it's just for my own amusement, um, so they're little Easter eggs for people who are interested in films. And, and I'd written a line from, um, well, I'd written a line in the last chapter of my last book, and I hadn't realized it was from a film because it's so embedded in my consciousness. But this is the line that my editor wrote back and said, I like the way you included this line from which film? It's from The Incredibles, yeah. So, so, in the <laughs> so this is a very serious science book. And in the first three pages, I quote Hamlet, Darwin, and Dash from The Incredibles. But it's expressing the same sort of idea. Now, I, I need to do a sort of quick recap of human evolution because it has radically changed in the last 10 years. It has undergone a revolution in our understanding of how we got from there to here. And the reason for that is because of primarily because of the introduction of genetics into paleoanthropology, so the study of human evolution, right? So um, th this, this is, there's two facets to this. One is that we're just better at understanding DNA, we're better at understanding the genetic code, but also we've begun in the last few years to be able to extract DNA, full genomes from the bones of people who've been dead for thousands, tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of years. And in doing so, we have this new historical text that we can compare to the traditional forms of understanding um, uh, human evolution, which is looking at bones and looking at the environment. So let me just do a quick recap, because it introduces the concept of the evolutionary tree, which is something that many of you will be familiar with. The first evolutionary tree is really drawn by Darwin in his notes in 1837. This is a sort of updated version of our tree. Now, you, will have, you may well have learned, seen, seen this kind of stuff at, at high school or over the last 20 or 30 years, um, and, and what I've got here is on the left-hand side, it's a million years ago, and in the, uh, on the right-hand side is the present day, and the yellow branches at the bottom, that's us, that's Homo sapiens, um, which are divided up in three subgroups, Asians, Europeans, and Africans, just, just primarily by geography, um, because that, that is how the, the spread of people uh, moved out around the earth. Um, but we've also got an, an earlier form of Homo sapiens, archaic modern humans, so they left Africa uh, more than 120,000 years ago and went, made it al almost as far as Siberia, but they leave no living descendants today. So they, they went extinct. Whereas the, the people that left Africa uh, about 80, 70 or 80,000 years ago 
transformed the populations of the rest of the world and, and, and there's Africa as well. You all probably know about the Neanderthals. We now divide them into the Eastern and Western. Neanderthals were primarily a European species, but the more we look, the more we find them into Eurasia. So there's Eastern and Western. And about 2009-10, there was a discovery in a cave in um, Siberia uh, of a single finger bone, the, the distal tip of a little finger uh, from a teenage girl and a tooth, um, which is not enough physical remains to designate a new species. But because of the advent of, of ancient DNA as a technology, did manage to get the full genome out of that little finger bone. And when that genome was sequenced, it's clearly different enough from Neanderthals and different enough from Homo sapiens to be classified as a different type of human. Now, we can't call it a, a different species because that's not how species are determined. It's determined by morphological characteristics, anatomical. But it's fair to say that the Denisovans, which is what we call those people, were effectively a different species of human. So that's, that's the plot. That's the rough plot of how the human evolutionary tree sits today, except it's just not correct. It's not correct at all because of the introduction of genetics into understanding our evolutionary past. What we then discovered is that, well, okay, genetics is the study of sex and families, and we have lots of euphemisms in genetics. And what we talk about is, well, we talk about gene flow events, okay? So a gene flow event is when one group of people or individual, their genes flow into another, another one. So you can, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and when the Neanderthal genome was, was first sequenced in 2009, and we have our own genome from the Human Genome Project earlier at the beginning of this century, um, and then the Denisovan genome, what we then began to see was that these branches are not distinct at all. And in fact, we have, well, we have gene flow events between the Western Neanderthals and the people of Eurasia who'd become Asian and European. And we know that because well, pretty much everyone in this audience has around one to two percent Neanderthal DNA, DNA. Okay, and that's pretty much everyone here. So we also know that the uh, Western Neanderthals interbred with uh, Europeans on a second occasion, a second gene flow event. We also know that the uh, the Eastern Neanderthals interbred with the archaic modern humans, but both of those those people are now extinct. And the Denisovans interbred with the Eastern Neanderthals and the Denisovans interbred with the Asians. And so while most of you guys have about up to 2% Neanderthal DNA, the further east you go, uh, East Asians have less Neanderthal DNA, but more Denisovan DNA, okay? So the, the, this, is, this is not a tree. This, this, I, I don't know what the right metaphor for this is. I am of a mind that the tree of life as a metaphor should probably be retired because it doesn't reflect actual evolutionary history. I mean, what is that? Is that a bush or a... I said a tangled bank, which is a Darwinian phrase. And I haven't, I haven't mentioned this, this one at the top. Let me just say this quickly because it's, I, it's a piece of science so awesome that I it's almost indistinguishable from magic. Um, when, when you compare the genomes of the Denisovans, Neanderthals, and the Homo sapiens, that's us, with each other, there's a bit in the Denisovan genome which is effectively missing. So there's, there's DNA in the Denisovan genome which we cannot account for, which the inference is that there is another species of human out there that they carry the DNA from, but we have no physical remains for them. So we refer to this as a mystery human or a phantom species. It may be that we know what this species is, but we don't know where, well, we, we haven't got DNA out of them. But again, you know, that I, I, this picture is gonna get more complicated in the next 
I, I, in fact, I can tell you it's going to get more complicated in the next year. Um, but it, it is only going to get more complicated as we find more, as we get better at genetics, as we get better at, at understanding our own trajectory. So that's the last, that's the million years of human history, how we got from there to here right now. Okay. Now, I'm talking about the paradox um, and the sort of conundrum of human, um, human evolution. Um, and it's exemplified by, well, so this is, uh, this is now the oldest member of the species Homo sapiens. So this is a fossil that was, well, was found in the 20th century, but redated in 2017. And the date came out as 300,000 years ago. And the location of this find is a place in Morocco called Jebel Irud. Right? So this is, this has moved the earliest Homo sapiens from the Rift Valley in Africa to the, nor the north of Africa, to Morocco. And it's moved the date of the earliest Homo sapiens from 200,000 years ago, which was in Ethiopia, to 300,000 years ago in Morocco. Now, the point about showing this is that we haven't significantly physically or genetically or anatomically changed in 300,000 years. If this person were here today and we tidied them up and put them in some modern clothes and gave them a shave and gave them a nice haircut, you could be sitting next to them and you probably wouldn't be able to tell. And look at the person next to you. Um, if you saw them on the subway, you'd, they'd just be uh, another Homo sapiens. And so we haven't physically changed significantly in more than a quarter of a million years, right? So we've been st static physically during that time. There have been some genetic changes as we've moved around the world and we have uh, re regional adaptations to different places, which is how we became so successful globally. So that's 250,000 years that we haven't changed, maybe more. But something really significant does change in the last 100,000 years and really significantly within the last 40,000 years, which is that we see the emergence quite suddenly, and in evolutionary terms, suddenly means like 10,000 years, but we see the emergence quite suddenly of complex, abstract art. That's, that's art, right? This, is, this was the oldest figurative art um, known. It is a carved tusk found in the 1930s in a cave in Germany. And um, it is a lion man. It's called the Lovenmensch of Hohenstein Stadel. And it's about 40,000 years old. And as you can see, it's about 12 inches tall. Uh, this is an illustrated book, by the way. And the illustrations are by a, um, another scientist in the UK who's quite well known called Alice Roberts. And it is so it's, it's about 12 inches tall. It's got seven stripes down its arm, which we think might be tattoos. Um, but obviously, it has a lion's head, a cave lion, in fact, which is an indigenous species at this time in southern Europe. So this is an imagined being. It is a chimera. It is the oldest figurative art. I'll come to that in just a second. And so we've been thinking about chimeras for at least 40,000 years. Now, we, we don't know what this is for. We don't know the purpose of, of it or why it was created. But what we can tell is a lot of things about the mind behind the, the, um, the creation of this beautiful thing which is that, it's in that that mind is indistinguishable from our own. It requires great sophisticated thought, abstract thought, planning. This can't exist on its own. Uh, it has to be part of a series, which presumably we'll never find any more of them. Um, but it, it shows an aesthetic sense. Maybe it is totemic in some form, but it reveres an animal that is part of the, uh, an important part of the culture at this time. Whoever created this, their minds were not dissimilar to our own. And we don't see this kind of abstraction earlier in evolutionary history than 40,000 years ago. And from this point on, we begin to see abstract thought like this in the archaeological record all over the world, and it, it just continues into the present. So this is what we sometimes refer to as 
behavioral modernity, so the, 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 the emergence of minds which are modern in the same way that ours are. Um, sometimes people call it the cognitive revolution. I don't like that phrase because I think revolutions should take more than ten, uh, less than 10,000 years. Um, within a few thousand years of this, we see a series of little statuettes in and around Europe, which are referred to as Venus figurines. This is the earliest one. The earliest one is the Venus of Holyfells, and it's about this big. And all of the Venus figurines are female forms, so they're the, the earliest depictions of um, the human body in, on, on its own without a lion's head. They often have exaggerated sexual characteristics, and so people have speculated over the years that maybe they are fertility charms or to do with reproduction in some sense. But the truth is that we, we don't know, right? We, we, can't, we cannot know the minds of someone sitting in front of us right now, let alone the minds of someone who died 40,000 years ago. Um, and I don't think it matters. I think it's fun to speculate about what the purpose of it was. It may have been a toy. It may have been a doll. Um, it may be pornography, and that's not me saying that. That is an academic paper which has suggested that it's porn. I, I find all of them equally implausible. Um, but the point is that it says, that again, this is the mind of someone who is not dissimilar from ourselves. But a few thousand years later, we have cave paintings. Um, these are the ones from uh, Lascaux in southwest France that are very well known. This is a megaloceros, which is um, an extinct I great Irish elk. Uh, and again, clearly of great cultural significance to the people who did it. And so far, I've only talked about Europe, right? So this is a very Eurocentric um, view so far, but that is massively changing at the moment because we keep looking and we find things like this, 38,000 years old in a cave in Sulawesi in Indonesia. These are hand stencils about two meters in from, a, from a, a, a the cave entrance. Um, it's red ochre that's been blown through a pipe, probably a hollowed bone around 14 hands, and we begin to see exactly this type of thing, hand stencils all around the world, including in, in America, within the next um, 10,000 years or so. So that's in Indonesia. Now, I, I, I said I've, I've been Eurocentric until we look at this. I've also been Homo sapiens-centric, anthropocentric. Um, oh, I'll tell you what, before I do that, the oldest figurative art that I said was the Lion Man, 40,000 years old, and in Germany, well, actually, and my editors hate me for this because the book is very up to date, which means that after I finish the last draft, I then insist on adding extra things because damn scientists just keep working. Um, and last October, this was published. Um, and if there's anybody who can make this out, this is in a cave in Borneo, a huge cavernous cave in Borneo. There's the horns and the head of a banteng. A banteng is an indigenous cow in um, Southeast Asia. And this was dated in October last year, and the date came out as a minimum of 40,000 years, making the earliest figurative art by Homo sapiens not in Europe at all, but actually in Southeast Asia. Um, so that's just Homo sapiens, and then, and then this happened last year as well. So this was a, a, a known cave painting from um, Cantabria in uh, the northern coast of Spain. It was found in the 60s, but redated last year with new techniques. This is a cleaned up image because it's quite faded on the, on the stone itself. But again, you can see the head of a bovid there and the back end of a, a, an animal there, but also these abstract depictions. When this was redated last year, the date came out at 60 to 64,000 years old. The only people in Europe 60 to 64,000 years ago was not us, it was Neanderthals. Right? So there's a, another type of human, another species of human that we did interbreed with, but we were not present, and they were also capable of 
abstraction of thought and this, this very creative process that is indicative of uh, behavioral modernity. Now, that date has been challenged, but we shall see. That shall play out in the fullness of time. But the point is um, that it wasn't just us. It wasn't in Europe. It was all over the world. All of these things are happening at roughly the same time, so within a few tens of thousands of years of each other, all over the world. And the question is, well, why did that happen relatively suddenly, like a thunderbolt in evolutionary terms, where for the previous 250,000 years, we hadn't changed at all? So that, that's really the question that I'm exploring. Now, in order to create things as sophisticated as this and some of the other artworks that I've been talking about, uh, you need tools. And tools was one of the things that Darwin suggested was unique to us, one of the things which was um, unique and fundamentally a human characteristic. And in the 1960s, the first tools were discovered associated with early humans. And so this is... Um, a, uh, it's what's known as the Alderwan Chopper, and it comes from Alderwai Gorge in the Rift Valley, and it is the first ones discovered were made from obsidian, which is a type of volcanic glass, chipped and flaked away to get a very sharp, sharp edge. And these were found by the Leakey family alongside uh, what became the first member of the genus Homo, so our, fam our broader family, uh, which, and that's what we refer to as humans. And the first member of that found alongside those tools was called Homo habilis, which literally translates in the Latin to handyman. So the first humans are defined by their tool use. It is inherent to our existence that we extend our physical capabilities by manipulating the environment around us. We, talk, we are obligate tool users. We cannot function without tools. And obviously we've taken this to extraordinary lengths with things like laptops and cars and projectors and books. Um, so that's the 1960s that Homo habilis is discovered as, as uh, tool use in, in humans. But as ever in science, those dates always move as we look harder. And in the 90s, a new type of hominid called Kenyanthropos platyops was discovered. So this is, n we, we don't count, we don't call this a human, although I, you know, the distinctions I think are semi-arbitrary, um, but dated to a full 3.1 million years ago was also found with these Alderwin chopper sets around it, which means that we've been obligate tool users for millions of years before we were even Homo sapiens. So the lineage of, of being tool users is very, very long and extended. The Alderwin sets is seen all over the world for more than one and a half million years. It, it spreads with humans as we spread around the world and you see them absolutely everywhere. That gets replaced eventually with the what's known as the Acheulean tool set. And these tend to be slightly larger, more versatile, um, sharper edges, and, and a diversity of tools around. And we see them all over the world as well for the next million years. Uh, and until we get into the last 100,000 years or so where we begin to see much more sophisticated tools. Now remember as well, these are stone tools. These are the ones that survive. We define ages by the presence of stone. Neolithic means new stone, Paleolithic means old stone. But of course, we, we don't have many remains of the things that would have been carved, right? Because they're biodegradable. So we don't have the wooden tools that would have been made by these Acheulean axe heads. Um, so this is only a part of the tool set that we think existed. So you ask yourself the question, is it just us? Like Darwin thought, are we the only tool users? Now you all know the answer to this because you watch nature documentaries and we see amazing things like, you know, orangutans, this is an orangutan, spearfishing um, in Sumatra uh, with, a, with a very straight, carefully selected branch that has been stripped and sharpened, they sharpen it with their teeth. 
Uh, all the great apes use tools in some form, stones and rocks, and they, they craft them. But we also know that, you, you probably know that uh, corvids, so birds are adept tool users, particularly the Caledonian crows, who uh, they, they will craft um, sticks, wooden tools, uh, to, to do things like in introduce curves, so the hooks rather than straight spears, because a hook is a much better tool than a straight spear if you're trying to spike something. What's really interesting about looking at tool use across the animal world is that it's very, very diverse. About 1% of all animals are obligate tool users, but it spans across nine different classes of animals. So there's mammals, there's which includes us and the primates, there's the birds, including the corvids and other birds, but also mollusks, such as the octopus, adept tool users as well. And it just shows very clearly that tool use is what Daniel Dennett refers to as a, a good trick, right? So it doesn't have an evolutionary antecedent that, that has flowed through evolution. It's just that many organisms have, uh, have innovated to, to work with tools, to work with technology over the last several billion years. Um, this is one of my favorite examples. This is obviously a crab. Uh, it's part of a family which are known as, well, they used to be called boxer crabs because they pick up stinging anemones in their claws and they use them to fight other crabs. Um, but the result of, which is awesome, but the result of that is that they've been renamed recently as pom-pom crabs. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a point where I thought I could just fill this whole slide deck with GIFs of crabs doing that because they're just brilliant. Anyway, um, so I'm going to have to move off that because it's quite distracting, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so, so something we have to think about in terms of tool use, in terms of the units of information required for transmitting the knowledge to create a tool, how that is passed down within groups of organisms. And that is something which is pretty much fundamentally different between us and most other organisms. The pom-pom crab may learn to do that, or it may be innately sort of genetically encoded, which means that that characteristic is passed down from parent to child. What we do, almost uniquely, almost uniquely, is that we share units of information about things, such as tool use, and we share it with every breath we take. Every time you interact with another human, you are passing on a piece of information which might be useful and, and help their survival in evolutionary sense. So there is a distinction, there's an academic distinction between teaching and learning, which is I'm not going to go into. But I th I, in the book, I tried to characterize us as a species of teacher. So lots of animals learn, but only humans teach. Now, there are some exceptions. There are a couple of exceptions. They don't do it at the same scale that we do it, because we do it literally with every breath. Um, but this is, this is my favorite example of what's known as cultural transmission. So the, 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 the transmission, not genetically, of a unit of information, a unit of culture, uh, which is for the benefit of, the, of that species. So these are the dolphins. These are bottlenose dolphins from Shark Bay in Australia. And they've been studied since the 1980s, and there's a big population. Um, but in the 1990s, it was observed that a small proportion of these dolphins were swimming down to the bottom and finding a sponge, a conical sponge preferably, and working it onto their, onto their rostrum, which is the beak. And, and they, you would see them swimming around. Here's a real photo of one. Um, and for a while, it, we weren't sure why they were doing this. But then when divers started observing them, they're, they're using this as protective shields so that when they're foraging on the, the craggy bottom of the ocean and trying to eat things like crabs and lobsters, 
um, they're protecting their beaks from getting scratched up and therefore might possibly getting in infected, which is awesome, right? That's one animal using a second animal to, to eat a third animal, right? Now, that, that's interesting enough as it is, but in the, in the 2000s, in about 2012, s other observations were made about this behavior, which we refer to as sponging, which were that only females do this. Uh, so a male has never been observed sponging, and we don't know why. We don't see any differential sexual success, reproductive success between the sponging females and the non-sponging males. Um, but uh, we, we, one can only speculate why the males don't, don't do this, because it seems like an eminently sensible thing to do. Um, but they just don't do it. But the second thing is that, that, that the researchers down in Australia started getting um, DNA samples off the, off the sponging dolphins from which you can tell that there are two very interesting things. The first is that the, dolf the sponging dolphins weren't particularly closely related to each other. So they're all female, they're in, it's, a, it's a large pod, so they're all, they're all related broadly, but it, wa it wasn't sisters and mothers and daughters that were doing this, it was spread across the entire population, as if the entire population of Harrisburg, well, half the population of Harrisburg started doing something and all the men ignored it. I can't imagine that that would ever happen. <laughs> Anyway, that was the first thing. But the second thing is, due to the pattern of inheritance that you could see from the genetics compared to them, the, the sponging itself, we know the generational time of the dolphin is about approximately 25 years. And so we could actually trace back through history where this behavior uh, uh, started. And the pattern that it drew, that the, the genetics drew, was that it started with an individual female, a single female, who we refer to as sponging Eve. And... <laughs> And it was six generations ago that this started. So at some point in the 1850s, the middle of the 19th century, a female dolphin got up one morning. Got up? Do they get up? Where do they, I don't know. Where do dolphins sleep? I don't know. Anyway, was up one morning and did and thought, uh, this is, uh, this, I'm going to try this. And from that point on, it was passed down. All, the, all of her uh, female friends and relations started doing that as well. And this has been a, a, a technology which has been adopted by the entire female population for the next 150 years. It is one of the few examples of learning behavior, possibly teaching behavior, we're not sure, because you've got to remember that most biology in the rest of the, most ethology, most study of animals goes unobserved by us. But because we can tell from the genetics they're not particularly closely related, it is, a, it is an example of cultural transmission. Now, there's an important point that, that, that lies within this that I just want to talk about briefly, which is that we, we, all, we all know evolution by natural selection is correct. It is the only game in town when it comes to explaining the diversity of life on Earth. Um, and there's natural selection. There's a subsection within that which is called sexual selection. Um, but also there's, a, there's, there's various bits of evolutionary theory that, that are correct but don't really make it out into the public discourse so much because they're not quite as erratic or easy to understand. Things like drift, which is just the stuff that happens, which is neither posi positive or negatively selected, but shapes enormous parts of biology. And also just the environment in which you're in. So sometimes there's a molecular biologist called Francois Jacob who, who talks about evolution as being a tinkerer. Yeah, so it's got the tools in front of evolution and just fiddles around with things and works out what works best. There's a, a, fra a phrase I came across which is not describing evolution, but it's from one of your presidents, um, Teddy Roosevelt, who, was, who he said, do what you can with what you have where you are. 
And I think this is a really good way of thinking about evolution in the environment. Now, the reason I bring this up now is because I'm just moving on to thinking about tools and, and switching to a different tool, a different a subset of tools, which is fire. But of course, dolphins, with all their smart behavior and their big brains and their highly social structured societies, and also some pretty um, um, uh, unpleasant behaviors, which I do talk about in the book, but I won't mention now, dolphins are never going to evolve the ability to manipulate fire, are they? Are they? Because they live in the sea. You, you, do, you got that, yes. So, so that, uh, that, that fundamentally changes the trajectory of, of, of their technological interaction with the rest of the world than terrestrial animals. And I don't think we think about that enough, that th these, are, these are just you know, cosmic happenstance, which fundamentally changes the direction of um, a, an evolutionary pathway. We use dolphins at high school to, as an example of, of uh, how evolution is, is correct because they have exactly the same bones in their front fins as we do in our, our hands. But of course, we can do that and throw a curveball and play the piano, and dolphins need them to swim, so they're fused together. So they cannot manipulate, uh, they can't hold anything with their front fins, they can hold things with their beaks, but they can't manipulate anything with their front fins. So it again, it's a very different interaction with technology that dolphins or cetaceans will have compared to primates. And, and it's something we don't think about enough, I don't think. I'm, I'm very critical in the book of um, branches of uh, science and sometimes pseudoscience and a, a branch of psychology, I'm a bit reluctant to say this out loud, but got it. evolutionary psychology is, is a, uh, an area which I have a lot of skepticism about because it makes a lot of obvious mistakes that are untestable in scientific terms that we cannot necessarily explain our own behavior, our own physiology, based on the physiology or the, or the presumed evolution that occurred to us in the Pleistocene or however many years ago. Comparing our behavior with animals sometimes can be useful, but in the book I'm ar I argue a lot that often it's not. Often we don't know the relationship between a behavior which looks familiar to us because animals do it in a similar way, but may be completely unconnected and fundamentally they're untestable hypotheses. So when people start talking about how the behavior of a certain animal uh, in a certain social structure is reflective of contemporary social structures that we have in humans, they are fantasizing. Um, anyway, let me just get back to fire. That was a bit of a, um, bit of a sidetrack there. Um, fire, so Darwin thought that fire was another thing that was unique to humans. We are, we are also obligate pyrophiles. We don't know when the origin of our interaction with fire was, but it's certainly millions of years old because we evolved in Africa where there are annual, continue to this day, annual savanna fires. And we have a sophisticated understanding of fire and a sophisticated relationship with fire. By at least 100 or 200,000 years ago, we have control of fire, which means that we do a lot of things in relation to fire and we become obligate dependent users on fire. Things like it allowed us to migrate north. It allows us to keep warm as we move away from the equator. Um, so facilitated migration all around the world. Cooking, of course, terribly, terribly important for a number of reasons. Cooking food is effectively external digestion, right? So we break down foods um, by cooking them before we take them into our mouths. And as a result of that, we have to spend less time eating. Now, less time eating is less time being eaten. 
because most organisms have their mouths on their faces. And if your face is down on the ground, then you can't see a predator who's going to sneak up behind you. Now, we, we know this for uh, us, but we also know that lots of animals have a sophisticated relationship with fire as well. The Fongoli chimpanzees in Senegal will stand next to the annual um, savannah fires very close, like terrifyingly close, and you know, fire is very capricious. Um, and they will wait until seconds after the fire has gone out, and they will go in to the ash, and they will dig out small mammals or semi-cooked geckos or you know whatever, and they will they will eat them. Vervet monkeys do that in um, South Africa. We know that meerkats spend less time standing on their back legs surveying the the horizon um, uh, if the if the ground has been burnt because they've got a clearer view. And we know that ungulates graze for longer periods of time in, um, in, in fire-burnt savanna than they do when the grasses are high. So there are lots of organisms which have a sophisticated understanding and relationship and a dependency on fire. Not the same as us, not as sophisticated as us, um, but I, I, I mentioned earlier that the stone tools are the only ones that remain. Well, this is one of the rare examples of a wooden tool that has remained, and, and this is a piece of boxwood discovered in a, in a site in Tuscany in northern Italy. Uh, this was 2018 it was discovered, but it dates to around 120,000 years ago, which means that who were the only people in Tuscany uh, 120,000 years ago? Not us, but the Neanderthals. And what it shows is a club, so we don't really know what it was for in terms of it being a, a club, but all of the small branches have been burnt off deliberately indicating that Neanderthals also had a controlled use of fire as, as a tool. So it wasn't just Homo sapiens, it was Homo neanderthalensis as, as well. Um, uh, so again, it just slight, this is a evidence of a slightly chipping away at the pedestal of our uniqueness, our specialness. It, wasn't, it isn't just us that controls and manipulates fire. Um, Neanderthals were certainly doing it as well. There, until 2017, it was thought, however, that we were the only species that could start fires from scratch, so start new fires, yes? Until 2017, when these birds were published in the scientific literature, three species of uh, birds of prey, um, uh, raptors in northern Australia, where they have annual savannah fires as well, were observed doing a very specific behavior, which is hanging around near the edges of fires, swooping in, picking up sticks that are burning, actually on fire, either with their, their beaks or their, their talons, and flying away uh, uh, over natural or man-made fire barriers and dropping them into dry areas of brush, starting new fires. They then go and sit in a tree and wait for the small mammals to run away from their, their inferno death into the, the, the talons of the hungry birds. Three species of, of raptors do this. We published it in the scientific literature in 2017. It was known about by Aboriginal Australians for possibly 10,000 years, and it formed part of, of um, long-standing um, ceremonial behaviors. This is what we refer to as IEK, so indigenous expert knowledge. Um, and here's, a, here's an image of it actually happening. Um, so natural natural barrier this this so you know or, or man-made a road to stop the fire spreading there is even a suggestion that um the uh, indigenous people of australia have been managing forest fires for thousands of years 
And there has been a suggestion, I don't know whether it's true or not, it's difficult to assess whether it's true or not, but there has been a suggestion that they may have learned this from the birds. Right? They might have learned this behavior from birds, which is an example of cultural transmission cross species, which is just phenomenal. I mean, just really, really cool and really, really demonstrates the benefits of not cruising into areas where, um, uh, where uh, there are indigenous people and just simply observing, but actually engaging properly with people who understand their, their, their environment much better than interlopers. So we don't think that any other animal apart from us can start a fire from scratch, but, uh, well, who knows, maybe, they're, maybe they're, they're working on it, in which case we're really screwed. <laughs> um, okay, now, this, this, the key, uh, let me, I'm going to wrap up so we can have some, some questions, because that's the more fun bit than me just talking. But um, the, the, the key idea in the book is, is when I'm exploring all these characteristics of things that we thought were unique and they turn out not to be so unique, but some of them may be derived from evolutionary antecedents, others may just look familiar. Um, but the key I idea that underwrites our ability to transmit ideas culturally, what we're doing now, what we, the, this line that I use about us being a, a species of teacher, there's, there's a new theory, it's new, new in the last five or six years, that doesn't get talked about enough, and I think this is the first popular science book to talk about it. Really only the work has been done at Harvard and at UCL, where I'm based. Um, and it, it is a, a behavior that underwrites all of the things that you may have been thinking of as being uniquely human that emerged in the last 50,000 years or so. And it's got a really dull name, which is um, demographic transition, but it appears that population size is fundamental to our ability, our incredibly enhanced ability to transmit bits of data from one to another. And it, it also, it also needs reference to the fact that we are uniquely a species of experts. So there is no other species in which specific talents are so unevenly distributed. Now we, we know this, maybe we don't think about it enough, um, but we know this because you know, if you wanna learn how to do something, you find someone who knows how to do it, right? N not everyone can mend a car, which is why we have garages to fix cars, um, uh, you know, and so on. We, we are an, a species of experts. Now, we think that this, this demographic transition idea, as, as our populations expand, possibly as a result of climate change, that we see in the archaeological record enormous explosions in cultural technology, the emergence of abstract art and therefore thought, um, musical instruments, and all of the things that we think of as being behaviorally modern, they all coincide, wherever we look on Earth, they coincide with massive expansions in, in population size. And so the mathematical modeling that goes with that suggests that when population sizes grow to, to, a, to beyond the threshold, that the transmission of information is optimized. And below that level, it is inefficient. And so I, I know that this, is, this sounds quite technical language, and these are quite technical models in the, in the academic um, literature. But it's something that we can quite healthily imagine in a community that if someone is the best carver of lion men or, or Venus figurines, and that that is something that is perceived as being beneficial to the, com to the community, or someone else is a particularly good hunter, or particularly good cook, or um, someone who's good at sewing, um, uh, sewing clothes together, then the spread of that information is absolutely crucial in the absence of writing things down. Uh, and, and it is not transmitted directly from parent to child, but transmitted in every direction, and it radiates out from individual experts 
And, and what appears to be the case in the modeling is that when populations reach certain sizes, that transmission of information becomes optimized as they get bigger. There is evidence, and this is a little bit culturally sensitive, but there's evidence that the opposite is, is, uh, is part, of part of the same model. And it relates to fishing technology. So I mentioned earlier that hooks are better than spikes for catching things. This is the earliest known fishing hook from Java uh, about 24,000 years ago. And it's actually the bottom of a flat-bottomed conical shell. You know those types of shells that say the hole is where the, the soft bit of, that of this um, creature would have lived? This, this particular one is still sharp enough to cut your skin if you, if you hold it. Now, this is 24,000 years ago, and it's in, in, in uh, Southeast Asia. By 10,000 years ago, all around the world, we have fishing technology which is this sophisticated. This is, these are actually Europeans, but they're fine-toothed, uh, uh, carved bone harpoons with those barbs on them, which enables all sorts of more sophisticated fishing uh, use. It means that if we, were if we were going out in boats beyond the reef or into the deeper waters, that we could fish for larger cartilaginous fish. Okay. Now, that's where fishing technology was 10,000 years ago. The, the, the evidence that supports the, the demographic transition model comes from Tasmania and Australia. Um, and it is, it is this. Now, I, it is culturally sensitive to this, but I'm just going to tell you the facts. So Tasmania is an island, but it was joined to mainland Australia until the end of the last ice age. The glaci last glacial maximum about 11,000, 10,000 years ago meant that the sea levels were much, much lower than they are today because the water was sucked into glaciers. As the glaciers melted, the sea level rise, rises, and Tasmania was separated from mainland Australia for the next 10,000 years what, by what we now call the Bass Straits. Now, if you look at the archaeological record on mainland Australia um, uh, 11,000 years ago, uh, it's, it's basically the same as on, on Tasmania. There's a, a tool set of a few dozen tools, which is standard around the world. By the time European colonizers arrived in the 17th and 18th century, the toolkit in Australia, mainland Australia, was into the hundreds, but the toolkit found by, uh, used by the indigenous people of Tasmania was now less than 20. Now, we have no evidence that the, there was any traffic between Tasmania and Australia after they separated, but the population on Tasmania remained very small and isolated. And, and this isn't, uh, this isn't uh, I mean, these are scientific facts. I'm not making any sort of judgment here. Um, but it looks like the, the lack of communication with larger population groups means the loss of specific technologies. And this is documented in, um, in some of the ship records from Captain Cook as they approached the Bass Straits and as they made first contact with Tasmanians uh, who were no longer fishing beyond the reef. So they had returned to just foraging on the shore and when Cook's men were out in boats harpooning cartilaginous fish, indigenous people of Tasmania expressed horror at this. And when you look at the archaeological record, you see cartilaginous bones 10,000 years ago, and they disappear as you get closer to the present. Whereas in Australia, where there were large populations and lots of traffic between people all over Australia and beyond, that technology continued to develop. So again, it relates to the size of, of populations. Now, I'll wrap it up there. Um, the, the, this, this idea is new. Um, it's new in the scientific literature. It deserves uh, uh, greater spread and greater investigation. Um, and it is the fusion of lots of sort of history and anthropology with harder sciences, including genetics. So I think it's interesting that it's not being discussed more, and maybe we can talk about it. I write about it in the book. But, 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 
all the best stories in evolution start with Charles Darwin, and the weird thing is that he spotted this in 1871. And it's just one paragraph in The Descent of Man, but it describes exactly this phenomenon in a very short way. But he says, and I will update it to use 20th century language, as humans advance in civilization and small tribes are united into larger communities, the simplest reason would tell each individual that he or she ought to extend their social instincts and sympathies to all members of the same nation, though personally unknown to them. I mean, it's right there. There's the key idea as we expand our populations. We shed the shackles of pure evolution in the sense that we only interact with our, our nearest kin, and we become communities and then civilizations. And as he said, I think the key idea here is that humans are a species of teachers. Thank you very much. We're going to transition to about just 10 minutes or so of Q&A, um, but I'll, uh, if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come to you with the mic. Yes, third row in the back. Um, so I have a policy of uh, taking questions alternating between women and men, and the reason for this is because the scientific literature is unequivocal on it, that if a woman asks a question first, then other women will ask questions, and if a man asks a question first, then no women ask questions. <laughs> this, is th this is published data. It's not me being politically correct. Um, so my, I, I will take the first question from uh, a woman. Or we can go home. <laughs> <laughs> TikTok. Yeah. All right, we'll make an exception because it's such a nice bookshop. <laughs> Gentleman there. Hi there. Hi. Uh, in your initial listing of agents of uniquely human left out one that I thought was particularly significant and I was wondering if that was an oversight or by design and that is religion. So uh, where does the book stand on humans versus animals? <laughs> I thought you were going to say communication. I thought you were going to say speech there, which is the, the first question that most audiences ask. Um, yeah, interesting question, really interesting question. The idea that, you, that religion is, is a universal human characteristic is disputed, uh, but I, I'm not sure it's useful to, to dispute it because it, religion is widespread and longstanding enough that it is clearly something that is, that is terribly important to the development of, uh, of the, the modern human psyche. Now, I do talk about this in the book. There's a specific psychological characteristic which is called agency detection. And it goes a long way to address the emergence of religions in, in, our, in our species. And it's basically the idea of attribution rather than um, dumb nature or, you know, forces of thermodynamics. And so, you know, we, we do this all the time outside of religion. We do it with anything va vaguely supernatural. But we're so attuned to agency detection that when your house creaks at night, as it's getting colder and the floorboards are shrinking, which is a you know, basi basic facet of thermodynamics, our agency detection is so attuned that it we automatically assume that there is something, that there is agency behind that. Now, the emergence of that in the evolutionary past makes a hell of a lot of sense because you know, if you come across, 40,000 years ago, you come across the body of your brother who has been 
clearly mutilated by a cave lion. Uh, the observation that um, he's not looking that good right now is, is far less useful than attributing agency to that and communicating that idea to the broader community, right? And saying, right, Steve's not looking that well right now, and that's because a cave lion has just done that, so we need to get the hell out of Dodge, right? So th this is an example of why agency detection is a really good thing to have. But we have become so, so attuned to agency detection that we attribute it all the time. There's a, there's a thing called pareidolia, which some of you may have heard of, which is the fact that when we all do it, it's seeing faces in inanimate objects. And there are great websites devoted to it, but it is a recognized psychological phenomenon. And you know, you'll be doing it now, and you know, looking around the bookshop, and you will see faces. That is an example of agency detection, that we are so attuned to faces, to looking at other faces, that we see them when there are none. Now, one of the things, I'm not a person of faith, but I'm not hostile to religion, but one of the things I think is, that I do mention in the book is that it, it is, maybe, maybe there is an evolutionary reason why we began using agency detection, extending it to the point where there's attribution and therefore the creation of, of agency in religious forms. The trajectory of humankind has been such that in understanding our own evolution, we are quite capable of tucking those gods away again. Do we have any questions from, from women? <laughs> yes, right here in the front row. Um, I have a lot of questions, but look, I was really interested in the lion man idea of a chimera. Um, even today when people see weird animals, they, they often think of it in terms of a mixture of two types of animals, which hybrids that yep. can't possibly exist. Um, so the idea of a relationship between uh, animals and humans, they perceive that they're part animal or that the animal can, can become more involved in, in a human uh, relationship. You know what I'm trying to say? It's yeah. very unique to see the animal uh, depicted as with human qualities. Yeah. Universal in all human cultures. The, lo the Loven Mensch is the, is the earliest known one. And, and this was part of some earlier work that I did, in fact working with some artists, because we started thinking about, um, well specifically about chimeras. Uh, and my, my background is in, is in pure genetics. Um, and you know, genetic engineering is exactly that, is the, is the actual creation of chimeras. The most, the most dramatic example that I use in my lectures is, um, have you come across the spider goats? So spider goats are goats that have been genetically engineered to produce spider silk in their, in their udders. They look like goats. I mean, they don't, they don't have eight legs or, or anything like that. But w when I was thinking about this and then thinking about this was contemporary and thinking about um, the Lion Man, we have a 40,000-year history of imagining uh, creatures with attributes from other creatures because that is very desirable. And, you know, mermaids, um, griffins, uh, you, they'll be, you list them, you think of them. But they, they, they exist literally in every, in every single culture. The, the relation, humans' relationship with animals is also fundamental to our own development. So you know, anyone who has dogs will know that dogs are, well our best working theories at the moment are dogs that are descended from wolves that became domesticated. Uh, the, the timing of this is, is debated a lot, but it's somewhere between 30 and 60,000 years ago. So we've been with dogs now for you know, tens of thousands of years. The domestication of animals uh, in terms of farming 
is also fundamental to the last 10,000 years of, of human history and is marked in our genomes, right? So we, we know this because, for example, a classic example that we talk about a lot is um, almost everyone in this room will drink milk throughout their lives, and this is a phenomenon called lactase persistence. Almost all people through history and almost all people on Earth today cannot drink milk after weaning because the, the, um, the enzyme that breaks down a particular sugar called lactose in milk becomes uh, dysfunctional after children about five years old. Now, you guys can do that because about seven or 8,000 years ago, um, a random mutation emerged in communities that were already dairy farming, but probably not for milk to drink, but to create cheese, uh, soft cheeses, and, and maybe yogurts, which don't have the same sugar in them. And so that interaction with, with animals drove, that, that cultural interaction with animals drove a genetic change which we carry in us to this day. What we now, so um, we, we now know that all, all Europeans have this and some other groups around the world also have lactose persistence. You might be aware of the fact that um, white supremacists and neo-Nazis uh, film themselves drinking milk uh, and it, if it weren't so horrific, it would be hilarious. Uh, but they film themselves chugging on, on gallons of milk to demonstrate their racial superiority because they have this particular gene. What, what's is, what I find comical about this is that all pastoralists around the world have evolved that same ability, including the Khoisan in South, Southern um, um, Africa, several other groups of African pastoralists, including the Tutsi in Rwanda, Middle Eastern camel herders, and also uh, pockets of, of people in, the, in East Asia. Um, but then again, also, you know, neo-Nazis aren't known for their understanding of <laughs> genetics. <laughs> Question to your right. Sorry. Now the hands go up. <laughs> yeah, hi. I want to thank you again for coming to the Midtown Scholar and also thank the Midtown thank you. Scholar for hosting another wonderful event. Um, a couple years ago, I read the international bestseller Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. And in the book, he talked about the distinguishing character of humans is our ability to cooperate at a very sophisticated level in very, very large numbers. And in the book, he, he attributes that to our ability to, to kind of embrace fictions like, you know, you, we talked a minute ago about religion and nation state or money. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts about, you know, his idea of, you know, how that separates humans from the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with those ideas he presents in, in, in that book. Um, I, th it's, th they're not, it's not really within the scientific domain. They're much, much more cultural and sort of speculative histories. And so I, I, I'm not that keen to expound beyond what is actually said in that book. And I think they're perfectly reasonable, if rather linear narratives. So, you know, the invention of money, I think, is, is not an unreasonable example. The fact that we have tokens rather than actual value is, is both clearly important for recent historical development. That's, that's, you know, we're talking about the last few centuries, thousand, um, whereas I'm much more interested in our sort of long-standing evolutionary history. Cooperation is fundamental. So, so you know, th there was always the big conundrum about what um, Richard Dawkins isolated as the selfish gene theory, the gene-centric view of evolution, which is correct, which also explains altruism in us, a big, you know, often mis misrepresented, um, 
but yeah, co cooperation in large groups is, is, is fundamental to cultural transmission. to the new technologies such as CRISPR, et cetera, and manipulating genomes. How do you think that plays out to future evolutionary changes? Yeah, that's a great question. That's the, that's the final chapter in the last book. And um, it's, a, it's a really good question. It's a good, it's a good sort of essay question for undergraduates. Are we, are we still evolving? Well, the simple answer is yes, because evolution itself just means change over time, right? And as long as we keep having children sexually, then um, we th they have different genomes to us, and therefore uh, we continue to evolve. The more interesting question is, are we still evolving under the auspices of natural selection? And that is a much harder question to answer, because as I said at the beginning, the timescales we deal with are thousands, ten thousands, and hundreds of thousands of years, and what people really want to know is, are we evolving now? Um, and it's not a very easy question to answer. The, the, the answer to the question about milk drinking is part of that. So we are evolving under not natural selection in its purest sense, but what we refer to as gene culture co-evolution. Right? So culture, the way we behave, influences our genes, and our genes influence our, our behavior. And, and that is it's not unique to humans, but it is the thing that we do. We, we, we do that a lot. Another analogy is that we've offloaded a lot of our behavior from hardware, which is biology and genes, to software, which is, which is culture. Um, the, the, the CRISPR question is interesting. Um, it, it gets framed in a different way in the book, which is to think about IVF, which is a, a, a technology which has been around since 1979, and we estimate that about 5 million children have been born via IVF so far, which sounds like a lot, but, and it sounds like it might, you know, contribute to an evolutionary change. It's not a big number compared to the population of the Earth, which is seven billion, so it's point less than 0.1%, but also it's very unevenly distributed, right? So the number of babies that are born via IVF in the US and Europe accounts for almost all of the five million, and around the rest of the world, where there are different selective pressures, the number is, is significantly lower. So the big driver of evolutionary change is um, uh, infant mortality and the age at which mothers have children. Now, what we know from looking at the stats on infant mortality is that in the, when they first started measuring it in the 19th century, the lowest rate of infant mortality was in Sweden and the highest rate of infant mortality was in West Africa. Now, when we look at it today, the lowest rate of infant mortality is in Sweden and the highest rate of infant mortality is in Somalia. Now, but the difference is that the numbers have gone down e enormously. Um, and weirdly, uh, um, the UK and America is somewhere in the middle. So, you know, definitely not, not near the top. But it's very unevenly distributed around the world. So that the long answer to the question is that. The short answer is, ask me again in 10,000 years, and I'll, def I'll definitely have an answer for you then. <laughs> so I'm very sorry we are running out of time. Oh, I'm sorry. I give, I give long question. answers. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be right here signing books, and you can, we can talk then as well. Are you familiar with nest hygiene in birds and also pharmacopoeia being practiced by primates. I've uh, noticed some things and I started collecting things offline. <laughs> um, I observed some bluebirds one time. They have caught moths and they were taking them and rubbing them against the sides and roofs of their nesting boxes. 
and understand that the uh, scales on insects are uric acid. And this would have been used, according to this article, as a repellent. Yep. And then even wilder in Texas, there's been a paper done on this. People observed owls picking up worm snakes and blind snakes. You can imagine how delicate that must have been and putting them into their nests because owl pellets, as they regurgitate, attract flies and flies produce maggots. These reptiles ate the maggots and the nests of these owls produced more fledglings than those that were not observed. And, and one other one. Uh, this had to do with um, primates, I can't remember necessarily which ones, but they were observed eating thorn bushes. And they, they ended up passing the thorns with tapeworms impaled on the, <laughs> on the, uh, on the thorns to, nice. rid, to rid the gut of the proglottis <laughs> yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Amazing. So there's a lot of examples out there. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I didn't know any of those three examples. There, there are many in the book, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a definitive guide to um, ethology. But those, th so chemical signatures, very, very well understood. So we know that um, I, I talk about uh, various crabs that grow things on their backs and they, they act as, as chemical repellents for, uh, for other attackers. Um, what was the second one you did? Um, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So there is a section on farming. So I, I talked about agriculture as being essential for us. Well, you know, the leaf cutter ants that carry, you, you know, the famous ones that carry huge bits of leaf, which are way heavier than them, and they walk along and they, they carry them along. They, they don't eat the leaves. The leaves are a substrate on which they grow fungus, right? So they are, they've been, and they've been doing this for about something like 40 to 50 million years. Now, the sophistication of that is that they, they say they are obligate cultivators, they're obligate farmers, but also they, they use specific antibiotics that only grow in specific pouches on, on their own um, heads in order to stop the funguses from getting infected. So they go in and they weed and they, they, they cultivate the, it's not land, the leaves themselves, and they apply antibiotics in order to stop the food from getting infected. And they've been doing that for 40 or 50 million years, they're actually a source, as you, you're probably aware of the fact that we're, we've run out of antibiotics and antibiotics have become very ineffective through overuse, particularly in agriculture. Um, we're now looking at um, leaf cutting ants, of which there are many species, as sources of new antibiotics because they have developed them for farming purposes for tens of millions of years longer than we were even, you know, while we were still monkeys with tails. So. Yeah, I mean, there is so much to learn from nature, from, from looking. It's that phrase, it's the Teddy Roosevelt phrase, do what you can with what you have when you have it, right? It's just that, that evolution as a tinkerer it has come up with some much better tools and we have much, much to learn. Can we give it up for Adam? <laughs>